Hello and welcome to David's Politics Show. Everything we do is dangerous. Those words were spoken by a Soviet engineer, Adolf Tolkachev, to his CIA case officer in October 1984. Less than nine months later, they would be proven very much true, in the tragic denouement of a gripping story of Cold War espionage and betrayal. That story is told brilliantly by today's guest, David E. Hoffman. David Hoffman is a contributing editor at the Washington Post, he previously covered the White House during the presidencies of Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush, and was subsequently diplomatic correspondent, Jerusalem correspondent, as well as Moscow bureau chief. He is also the author of The Dead Hand, the untold story of the Cold War arms race and its dangerous legacy, which won the Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction in 2010. David, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So let me ask you to set the stage for us by introducing the protagonist, because he's really the, the driving force behind this story. Who was Adolf Tolkachev? What kind, of a, what kind of a man was he? Let me tell you a story about the beginning of World War I, which will explain a lot about Tolkachev. When, when Hitler attacked Moscow by bombing in 1941, tens of thousands of people scrambled to escape the bomb, sort of like what you see now in Ukraine. And they ran to the metro station deep underground. Adolf Tolkachev lived in Moscow, and when that bombing happened, he was just 14 years old. And, you know, Moscow was surrounded at the time by 600 large searchlights and 800 anti-aircraft guns. But the German bombers got through. And one of the reasons is that the Soviets lacked good radar. They didn't have it because uh, Stalin had put some of their best engineers in prison, but mm -hmm. radar would have given them early warning of the approaching bombers. It was relatively new technology in the 1930s. The Soviet Union was way behind the West, and the radars were very primitive. But in this case, we're thinking about a young boy in Moscow running for his life to get to the subway. To, Moscow was a city largely built out of wood, so the uh, bombs set off huge fires. But the Soviet leaders concluded they desperately needed better radar. So this became a major influence on Tolkachev's life. His schooling was all about radar. In 1954, after he had gone to a high school and a university to study electronics and radar, he was assigned to a top-secret military research institute to work on radar. Mm -hmm. And he spent the rest of his career there working on radar. So that, first of all, places him in the needs of the Soviet system. People didn't get a lot of choices about where they went to school or what they did for a profession. They kind of were placed in places. And he was put in a place of very high priority. At the Institute, he met a young woman named Natasha Kuzmina. She worked in an antenna department, and she had had a really, really rough life. Both her parents were repressed during Stalin's Great Terror. You know, her mother was executed. Her father was sent to the Gulag when she was only two years old. She was really bitter about what had happened to her parents, but by 1957, life 
for Natasha and for Adolf seemed to be improving in Moscow. You know, there was optimism in the 1950s. These were the years known as the Thaw, and they were married in 1957 in Moscow. And they had some optimism that whatever had happened before in the war and with the Great Terror might not happen. They had a son in 1965, but by the 1970s, Soviet Union started entering a real period of stagnation. There were long lines and shortages for food. You had to wait in a line for a new pair of shoes. Um, and Tolkachev began to feel something eating away at him. He was angry about the past for what the Soviet system had done to Natasha's parents. Mm -hmm. He was angry about the present because of the failure of the system to provide a decent standard of living. And he just decided that he had to act, to do something. And he was disgusted with the Soviet slogans and the stagnation. Now, millions of people in the Soviet Union were also disgusted, but they didn't act. Tolkachev did. So this now tells us what his motive was. So here's an engineer. He lived in a high-rise, a good apartment in Moscow. He had a job at a secret institute working on radar. He had a motive being uh, you know, unhappy with his life and with the past. He decided to act. Indeed. And tell us then how, how he first attempts to make contact with the CIA. It's, it's quite a convoluted attempt. He's very determined. How does he actually go about doing this? You know, I said he lived in a high-rise building in Moscow. And it was just a few blocks from the American embassy. And he, he was a short guy. He was five foot something. And he often went jogging, usually three times a week if the weather was permitting. Um, and he had a jogging route that took him in a big circle around the perimeter of the American embassy. And he was very observant. He knew where the guard shacks were, where the Americans parked their cars. And, you know, the guards would see this short little guy come huffing and puffing down the sidewalk. They didn't pay him any attention. He did it regularly. But, of course, he was looking at the cars as he went by, and especially looking at the ones that belonged to diplomats, which at that time had a very uh, specific license plate. It be the plates all began with the letter D-04. Mm -hmm. So uh, when he decided to do something, he wrote a note. And he uh, had, Tolkachev had very crude English, but he memorized three phrases. He taped up the note in a package. He used some glue. Um, he covered it a couple times from some tape. It was a, a package bigger than a letter, but not too big. And he went to a local gas station. The gas station was right near the American embassy also, and that was on purpose because Tolkachev was looking for those cars with the D-04 pulling up. Mm -hmm. January 12th, 1977, it was about 6 p.m., with his package in his pocket, Tolkachev staked out the gas station until he saw a car with the D-04 license plates. And he went up to the driver of the car, who was just finishing up and was about ready to get in. And in English, Tolkachev repeated the first sentence that he had memorized. Are you an American? And then 
the second sentence he had memorized. I would like to talk to you. Well, Polkchoff didn't realize it, but he had just approached Bob Fulton, the CIA's station chief in Moscow. <laughs> so uh, Bob hadn't even noticed Polkachev standing there. That's what he told me later. But then uh, he realized he couldn't just talk to this man right there, and he didn't know who he was. And Bob said, it'll be difficult to talk here. Maybe just trying to get rid of him. Mm -hmm. And Tolkachev said the third phrase he had memorized. Oh, it will be difficult. He reached into his pocket. He took the note. He sort of tossed it onto the front seat of the car and slipped away into the darkness. Well, Fulton was a really experienced case officer. He had uh, many years' experience in he got in his car and went right back to the CIA station, which is the, the CIA office in Moscow, opened the package, and he sent a cable to headquarters. And uh, readers can see this cable. It's reproduced in my book, mm -hmm. The Billion Dollar Spy, and it's in the opening pages of the book. And, of course, back in CIA headquarters, they were pretty used to people showing up, making offers like this. And they said, don't talk to him because they were very afraid that it was a plant. Mm. They oftentimes were what they called dangles, which is the KGB would dangle somebody to try and trap the CIA officers in Moscow. Well, Bob Fulton was a very independent-minded guy and experienced, as I said, and he had a feeling in his gut that this, something about this guy was very genuine. So before headquarters could answer, he looked at the note. The note proposed another meeting in front of a storefront, not far away from the embassy. And the note said, if you want to meet with me, park your car, pull in backwards to the parking space, leave your lights on, and we'll meet over here. Fulton followed the instructions. He went back. He pulled his car in. He turned the lights on. He got out and walked around. Nobody was there. Nobody. So he went back to the station. And he got in, there was the answer from CIA headquarters saying, don't do it. Don't meet with him. <laughs> Better late than never. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, this uh, led to months and months of encounters in which Tolkachev continued to try and get the CIA's attention. He would spot case officers, check their license plates, a couple times tried to drop them envelopes. and. Headquarters said no, 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 and then finally, they said yes. Indeed, yes, and uh, so he he's finally made contact, and he's he's been very de very determined about it. And once the relationship is underway, uh, it develops relatively relatively quickly. Now, the main challenge that we have to kind of imagine for ourselves is that of course compared to our own era this was still very much an analog era right there's no internet there's no email nothing of the sort so the the tradecraft involved is is really interesting here right because the entire covert relationship takes place in moscow let me tell you a little bit about that because yeah just before we get to the tradecraft there's something else i think is very important that will explain a lot mm -hmm. Okachov's first meeting with the CIA was New Year's Day, 1979. Already almost two years since he first proposed it. It was extremely cold. It was frigid. One of the reasons the CIA officer picked this day 
is that he knew all the KGB guys would have a hangover. <laughs> and none of them liked to go outdoors and follow him around. The CIA's case, first case officer for this uh, case was John Gilsher. He was the son of Russian immigrants who had moved to New York City, and he had great Russian language skills. He was a very reserved guy, uh, very sort of dignified. His hair was prematurely gray, and you know he could blend in perfectly on the streets of Moscow. Um, he had been a language officer using Russian all his career, and this was his first chance to actually run an agent on the street. So they met near a subway station not far from Tolkachev's building, and Gilsher uh, had you know, an incredibly intense uh, and not very long conversation. He had a lot he wanted to know, and, and he knew that they couldn't just sit around and schmooze for hours. And mm -hmm. one of his questions was to Tolkachev, why are you doing this? And Tolkachev was vague. He said, I am a dissident at heart. And he didn't explain it right there. But over time, he came to trust Gilsher. And in the letters and in the meetings with Gilsher, they learned a lot more. Tolkachev told the CIA that he felt that Soviet politics, literature, philosophy had been, quote, emeshed for a long time in such an impassable, hypocritical demagogue and ideological empty talk that he hated it. He just ignored it all. He didn't spy because he loved the United States. He wrote to the CIA, I have never seen your country with my own eyes, and to love it unseen, I do not have enough fantasy nor romanticism. No, Tokachev betrayed his country out of anger. He told the CIA over and over again he was bound and determined to do as much damage as possible in the shortest possible time to the Soviet Union. So he was really driven to espionage by a terrible system. Mm -hmm. It was sort of like a hidden hand that pushed him forward. So the book tells a lot more about the operation, but um, we can now maybe turn to some of the methods that the CIA used in this very dangerous environment of Moscow to communicate with Tolkien. Yes, please, because that's, that's one of the, the most interesting and really thrilling parts of the book is you describe very well how, how the CIA planned every single meeting in an incredibly meticulous fashion because, of course, there was so much at stake. Tell us a little bit about how they went about doing this and, and how, how, the, how meeting Tolkachev in the middle of Moscow uh, actually took place. Well, the CIA's problem in a case like this is that, you know, this is the analog era, right? They, this mm -hmm. is long before digital cameras or email. Um, or even mobile phones. So really, the kind of espionage they wanted to carry out had to be working with a human source like Tolkachev, not through any... In fact, the technology of the day was such that even Xerox machines, photocopy machines in the Soviet system, were locked up and controlled by the KGB because the Soviet leaders feared disseminating information. So Tolkachev couldn't just very well go to a, a FedEx and, you know, or a yeah. copy shop and say, oh, can you make me 500 copies? Right. So here's how the thinking went. The first thing was 
Um, he worked in a top secret institute with a lot of military secrets that the CIA wanted. How to get them those secrets out? Tolkachov in his office was allowed to look at documents, and Tolkachov told them that there was a library, and he would it was a secret library, and he would go there and check out a file and then take it to his desk. But he also revealed in these meandering conversations with Gilsher, always outside, usually in a park, he revealed that the Institute had a very lax security system that he could basically take a document off his desk at the lunch hour, put it in his overcoat, walk home for lunch, spend an hour at home. Mm-hmm. His apartment building was a 20-minute walk from the, from the office. Walk back after lunch and then turn the documents in at the end of the day. So the CIA came up with the idea that photography would be what would save them and that he would photograph the secret documents at home while he was having lunch. And he said that it would be no trouble to take them out of the building and bring them back. So they gave Tolkachov a Pentax camera, a single lens reflex. 35 millimeter camera. Uh, Pentax ME was a very popular camera that wouldn't even look that unusual in an apartment of a Soviet engineer because they were widely used by tourists and they weren't that expensive. Um, And so the CIA also took a very high resolution film that was invented for satellite photography and they wound it into Soviet film canisters and put it inside Soviet film boxes. So if someone discovered it, it would look like it was just his supply of 35-millimeter film. They gave Tolkachov also a um, clamp. that The camera could be attached with this clamp to the back of the chair in his kitchen. So the first thing that Tolkachov began to do was to bring documents home and start to photograph them. But... The CIA, before they gave him the camera, had second thoughts all of a sudden. Someone said, you know, um, this guy is brand new. We haven't trained him. So they gave him a little miniature camera. It was called the Molly, named after the inventor's daughter. But it was a a tiny matchbox-sized thing. And Tolkachov tried to take some pictures with it. And when he gave it back to Gilsher, it was actually the first pictures. None of them came out. The light was too dim. The Molly couldn't work very well in his apartment. That's when they decided, okay, give him the Pentax. And they also gave him an experimental spy camera. This camera was an absolutely amazing piece of engineering. It was no bigger than a lipstick, but it had took 80 pictures. It was especially adapted for taking pictures of documents. If you put your elbows on a table and held the Tropel camera, that was the name of it, the Tropel. Mm-hmm. If you held it like a lipstick above a document, about 12 inches, it would take a perfect picture. The thing about the Tropel, it had just been invented for the CIA. Uh, it was such a fine piece of optical engineering that it had to be hand-assembled in Rochester, um, New York, and there were very few of them. It was so complex and uh, also so innovative that the British were once given the do- the blueprints and told they could make their own and they couldn't manage it. So the CIA just had a few of these precious high-tech spy cameras and they decided to give one to Tolkachov. So he got the Pentax with the clamp, 
and he got this little camera, and the CIA cautioned him. Gilsher said, Adolf, don't take this camera to work, because if you get caught with this, it's going to be obvious what yeah. you're doing with it, right? Just try it at home. Mm-hmm. So Tolkachev began to bring documents home by the truckload. I mean, this guy was incredibly determined. He essentially emptied the, lo- the library, the secret library, day after day. And he didn't really use the tropel. He didn't pay much attention to it at first because the Pentax was such a workhorse. Day after day, Natasha, his wife, who was sort of heavy set, took her, uh, the bus to work every day. She didn't come home for lunch. So he could be alone in the apartment and he could make these uh, huge numbers of photographs. Now, John Gilsher's tour wouldn't last forever. A CIA case officer's tour is usually about a year or two, maybe two years. So one evening in June 1980, when Tolkachev uh, met Gilsher in a park, a beautiful summer evening. It was late, but the light, the light was still gorgeous in Moscow. He had 179 rolls of film in the briefcase. That's astonishing. <laughs> his own briefcase. Gilsher had a little plastic bag. He was expecting two or three. So Tolkachev just gave him the briefcase and said, take it all. And of course, Gilsher realized that if he got caught carrying 179 rolls of top secret documents, (laughs) (laughs) so he just grabbed the briefcase and ran back to the station. Mm -hmm. So that was the main technological advance. It wasn't all that high tech, right? It was a Japanese-made 35 millimeter camera. But later, when the Pentax broke, the Tropel came in handy. Um, Tolkachev did use it. And also, they ran into trouble because the Institute changed the rules. And one of the ways they tried to tighten security was they required Tolkachev and everybody else to deposit their, their building pass, their identification, in the library, in a slot. And have a, uh, so that if they put their ID there, he couldn't just walk out right. and go home. So he asked the CIA, this was his idea, could they make a fake building pass, a second one, so he could leave one in the library and use the other to come and go? Mm-hmm. Well, this went on for a long time because the CIA kept trying to replicate his pass and unsuccessfully. Remember, this is the age before. Uh, digital photography. There were no scanners. Mm-hmm. None of the ways today you might do this. They made four tries, and they just couldn't do it. So one day, Tolkachev actually, he the thing that there was troubling for them is it had these intricate swirls, sort of purple swirls on it. Tolkachev tore a corner of the building pass and handed it to his case officer and said, "Here, send this back to Langley and tell them." <laughs> And anyway, when they finally got it done and finally fixed it, the rules changed again and it was overtaken by events. Right. But yeah, it's an indication of, of his, his determination. Um, tell, tell us a little bit, briefly if you would, about how the, the CIA case officers themselves managed to shake the, the constant KGB surveillance in Moscow. Moscow was a very hard place for them to work because um, KGB seemed to have unlimited number of young officers they would surveil everybody from the CIA. You went out and walked your dog, and they were following you. 
Mm-hmm. And everywhere you drove, they tried to follow you. So this, one way the CIA officers would do this is that they would somehow try to escape from their compound where they live without being noticed. Um, and they had a trick, which in, I describe in the book, uh, in which they created essentially a fake birthday cake. I say fake because there was no cake in it. It looked like a birthday cake, but it was hollow. Mm-hmm. And they made a very ostentatious call on the telephone uh, to plan a birthday party. This was also to throw off the KGB who were listening to the call. Then uh, one day, the case officer, the chief of station, their wives get into the car, one of the wives carrying the birthday cake. KGB guys. Well, they're going to the party. We heard them talk about it on the phone. Mm-hmm. They drive out of the uh, compound, and of course, the KGB follows them to the birthday party. But you know, they had methods to sometimes lose the KGB by going around a sharp turn. They disabled the handbrake lights on their cars so that the they wouldn't put on the tail lights. And in this particular case, they went around the turn, and the guy, the case officer in the front seat, the one who was about to meet Tokachev, jumped out, and he changed into a uh, outfit. He actually peeled off his clothes, and he was in an outfit that looked like an old Russian man. And he quickly put on a mask that made him look old. And to fool the KGB officers who came whipping around the corner, they ignored. They didn't see him on the street. The cake had a lever, and the driver pulled the lever, and out of the cake popped up a cutout that looked like the guy who was sitting there. They called it the jack-in-the-box, and it was a two-dimensional cutout, but it made it look like there was somebody in the front seat. And, of course, the CIA guy sped away to the birthday party. The KGB raced after him to the birthday party, but the real CIA officer who was about to meet Tolgachev was walking unnoticed along the street in a mask and an old man's clothes. Fascinating, yeah. You you wonder you got to wonder whether they they use uh, they still use some variants of of these techniques today. Of course, it's a different different operating environment with with cell phones and GPS transmitters and er- and ever and whatnot. But um, so a- as you said, Tolkachev is incredibly productive. He at almost every meeting he comes laden with camera rolls in fact at a certain point you even say that the the cia in fact almost asked him to slow down because they were concerned that um he would uh he would he was taking too many risks but tell us a little bit about the the value of the intel he provided as you mentioned he was he was an expert on radar explain for the listeners why that was so important and um and why he merits the the title the billion dollar spy so Keep in mind that the Soviet Union was a huge country. It was even bigger than Russia is today. And it had an enormous uh, land border. And the Soviets defended this border with radar. And they defended it with radars on the ground and with radars on their planes in the air. And also the Cold War conflict between East and West cut a big line right through the middle of Europe. And if it was ever going to become a hot war, then radar would be the eyes and ears of the Soviet military. So it was very important for the United States and for the West to know about Soviet radar capabilities. 
But interestingly, uh, we knew a lot more, actually, about their nuclear weapons and their intercontinental ballistic missiles. But my study of the records suggests that the United States couldn't quite get a fix on whether Soviet radars were very good. And here's why that was important. We had developed a, a new technology called stealth. It, stealth technology was not yet quite ready for prime time. Mm-hmm. It was being in, worked on very secretly, 1979, 1980. So in the interim, until it was ready, the United States placed a bet on cruise missiles, which would fly very close to the ground. And they, we had enough uh, sophisticated technology. The cruise missiles could hug the ground. They could actually see where they were going. And at this very low altitude, they were flying under the Soviet radar. The Soviet radars couldn't see the first couple hundred feet. And this was an extremely important uh, thing for the United States to know, is whether or not the Soviets had developed a radar on their airplanes that was called look-down, shoot-down. And the real question was, could their airplanes look down and spot those low-flying cruise missiles that would evade the land-based radar? And we had no idea. Well, Tolkachev, in his documents, um, helped the United States realize that the Soviets did not have good look-down, shoot-down radar, that they were years behind, and that therefore our uh, decisions to use the cruise missile and later to build stealth were the right ones. And he also opened our eyes to other things, for example, the plans for all the Air-based, the Soviet air-based radars on all their MiG and Sukhoi uh, fighters and bombers, we got the plans and we would know exactly the capabilities of their radar so we could build jamming devices. And that would, again, give us an enormous advantage if the Cold War ever became hot. The Soviets also built an airborne warning and command plane that looked like a flying radar station. It was almost exactly like ours. Theirs was years behind, but one of the things that we learned from Tolkachev was how their AWACS communicated with different planes in the air. We cracked their code. We were reading their mail. So much of this stuff started coming in over the couple of years that Tolkachev was using that Pentax camera that he really provided the United States a gold mine. And he provided a roadmap for the United States to compromise and defeat two critical Soviet systems. The first were the radars on the ground that defended it from attack along that huge land border. The second were the radars on the warplanes that gave it the capacity to attack others. And at one point, the CIA, which was processing all the stuff and turning it over to the Air Force and the Navy in the United States. The CIA asked the Air Force in this case, how's our spy doing? Like, you know, is this Mm. stuff worth it to you? Right, what's it worth? And uh, what's it worth? And the answer came back that Tolkachev had saved the United States somewhere in the neighborhood of $2 billion in research and development because we now knew exactly what the Soviets were working on and what their plans were for the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. And that 
answer that he had saved the United States $2 billion was before they even looked at the 179 rolls of film in John Gilsher's briefcase. Yeah, that's an, in, an indication of uh, just how much intel he, he provided. So that's why I called the book The Billion Dollar Spy. Indeed, yes. So he, he goes on spying for, for a number of years until uh, the mid-'80s, and the, the relationship with the CIA then comes to an end, but not because of a mistake of tradecraft or something like that in Moscow itself, but he is, in fact, betrayed. We won't spoil too much for the listeners. Uh, I encourage the listeners to go and pick up the book and find out the details. It's a very interesting story of how exactly that happens. Um, attentive Cold War espionage aficionados might think that it's Aldrich Ames, but you argue in the book that it wasn't him. Well, if you don't want to go there, then I'm not going to tell you how he was betrayed. But <laughs> very good. The yeah. book says in the title that he was betrayed, and he was right. Exactly. We'll we'll leave it. We'll leave it at that. Um, Finally, David, uh, tell me, what made you interested in, in, in this topic? How, how did you come across the story, and, and how did you go about gathering the sources? Because you, you talked to a lot of the protagonists who were, who were personally involved in, in this uh, thrilling story. You know, I was a White House correspondent for the Washington Post when Reagan was president. So I covered the summits, you know, Geneva and Reykjavik. And Mos I, I didn't go to Moscow then, but then later... Uh, I became the Moscow bureau chief for the Washington Post. So I saw both sides of the Cold War and uh, wrote an earlier book, The Dead Hand, that you mentioned. Um, so I had a lot of uh, interest in the subject about how these things worked. And when The Dead Hand came out, I, I was always curious about whether or not the real uh, espionage had made a difference. And I really got interested in this case because I wanted to know, at the time that Gorbachev, and Reagan were getting together. It came right at the end of the Tolkachev case. So we had a couple of years of basically robbing blind the, top, the secrets of the Soviet system. And, you know, I wanted to know, did that lead to peace or at least to Perestroika and Glasnost? Well, it didn't. Uh, Perestroika and Glasnost were really a product of the implosion of the Soviet system and its inability to provide a uh, good standard of living to millions of people. Mm -hmm. But I started to pull the strings on this particular story and to try and learn more about it. And I found out that one uh, training manual that the CIA had prepared for its own people discussed the case and that that manual had been partially declassified. So I used that as a jumping off point to find the people that had worked with Tolkachov, the case officers, the the station chiefs and so on. And then, you know, because I knew Moscow, I went back there myself. Um, I you know, spent many years working there. I found out where Tokachev and his case officers met. I walked the walk. You know, I tried to envision walking back and forth to his office. And, you know, ultimately I was a journalist. I went out and do what journalists do. I, I tried to report what actually happened. I still don't know everything about the case, uh, but I was able to at least get enough of a feel for it. And certainly the deprivations of the 1970s, that stagnation period that motivated Tokachev, is widely known. And the whole uh, business of spying was very much, in his case, 
about human sources. And, you know, there are other uh, bits of technology and tradecraft that I describe in the book, including a sort of ill-fated um, early cell phone that they tried to get Tolkachov to use. He didn't use it. Mm-hmm. The success of this case was, you know, John Gilsher looking him in the eye and saying, why are you doing this? And Tolkachov saying, I'm a dissident at heart. This is all about the psychology and the choreography of human source espionage. Yes, absolutely. It's 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 a great reminder of the of the importance of hu- of human intelligence, right? As as opposed to signals intelligence and and so on and so forth. Well, it's it's a it's a really great read. It's uh it's very well narrated, and there there are also uh, pictures in the book, and and you also quote from a lot of these operational cables, which is so much fun to read and to see the correspondence between the Moscow station and, and CIA headquarters as they went back and forth, deciding very often the minutiae of, of the meeting and interpreting Tolkachev's own uh, operational notes and so on and so forth. It's, it's a, really a, a thrilling read. I recommend it to the listeners. The book is The Billion Dollar Spy, A True Story of Cold War Espionage and Betrayal. The author is David E. Hoffman. David, this has been great fun. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to David's Politics Show. If you enjoyed the episode, do consider subscribing and leaving a positive rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to the show. This helps other potential listeners find out about the podcast. Thank you very much. And until next time, so long.